More details, I would argue not nearly enough, but more, are coming out about two disturbing incidents yesterday afternoon at two Fraser Valley prisons. Both occurred at about 5 o'clock. While little is being said about the cause of these two violent attacks, we do know that gangs are making things a great deal more dangerous in our province. Here are the facts as we do know them about what happened yesterday, and these have been confirmed by the paramedics. The paramedics say they got uh, calls to the Kent Institution, that's the maximum security one in Agassiz, five ground ambulances and two advanced care paramedic responder units came in. The paramedics cared for and transported three patients to hospital. Their condition? Critical. Paramedics also received a call at about 10 minutes later. In Abbotsford, half an hour away, another federal institution, the Matsqui Medium Security Institution in Abbotsford, Two ambulances responded, paramedics cared for and transported two patients to hospital. No word on those two's conditions, no word on anybody else who wasn't treated. But those are the facts as we know them. We don't know what this is all about, but context here is important. It's happening at the same time that we do know that there is more gang violence more drug violence in the province, and certainly, without a doubt, a lot more violence in our prison system. So with that in mind, we're going to bring in our guest, John Randall. He is with the Union of Correction Officers Canada, the Pacific Region President. John, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for spending some time with us. And it is going to be a story that we're going to continue to follow. And I promise I'll even check in with you over on the weekend just to see if there are any more updates. But what more do we know about what's happening at these two federal institutions after what happened last night? And what can you say to your members who are responsible for corrections, uh, keeping everything in, in control? Well, right now we don't know a lot of information. The CSC isn't releasing a ton of information yet. They're conducting their own investigation. But we do know that it was uh, two simultaneous attacks. So it happened uh, at pretty much the same time at, at both those institutions that you had mentioned, um, which is fairly rare for us to see a coordinated attack like that. Um, and it, it really goes to show the state of what our prisons are in right now. And and I've talked about it on this show on with CKW before, and and it's the cell phones and the drugs and the and the weapons that are coming in through drones, which are really creating this dangerous subculture. Which you know, in in the union's opinion, is is what this current situation uh, is all about. Let's talk about the danger involved here, because quite often when a statement comes out, we talk about who has been treated, and in this case, it doesn't look like there were any corrections officers. But they're going to be right in there right away. That puts them in danger. Let's be sure of that. Are you concerned? um, What's being done? And and there's more of this happening. Yes. Well, the violence is at an all-time high. Uh, You know, I've been in corrections now for uh, just about 15 years, and it's the highest I've ever seen it. Um, So that's the, the scariest part. The level of weapons that they have now because of drones is, is not the traditional prison shank that we've seen in the past. Like we're seeing actual knives making their way into institutions, actual pocket knives and, and things like that. So that's causing a, a whole new set of, uh, of challenges for us. 
And you're right, our members get in there and, you know, they have to respond to a knife fight. They have to jump in and stop a knife fight from happening. So there is the risk of them getting injured. But in all that, I think it speaks a lot to what we do because this is a serious, serious incident. Uh, and the fact that no inmates uh, were, were killed in this uh, goes to show the level of first aid they received on scene until the paramedics arrived. And the level of response was, was excellent. So, uh, you know, hats off to our members. Uh, they did an excellent job. And But I think that it's it's a telling uh, picture of what's happening in our prisons and the level of violence. John, do we know for sure nobody was killed? Uh, yes, nobody was killed. Okay, well, that is good news indeed. But when I see that three at Kent were in critical condition, and my hat's off to all those that have to step in in a situation like this, critical condition means lives could have been lost in that incident alone. Now, you mentioned the old days of uh, Shanks, and I think of, uh, you know, Sons of Anarchy and things like that that happen on TV. That's my only knowledge of it. Of course, you know the system, but it used to be that somehow they would make their way into prisons. Uh, How was, what was the old system? How would weapons get into prison or would they actually be carved or molded within a uh, prison setting? Well, the old old way or the old corrections, like you said, they would have carved it right there. They would have literally taken a toothbrush uh, or a piece of fencing or a piece of metal and, and spent time and carved it. So that was what you saw in movies is actually what happened. But now with the advancements of technology, they don't need to do that anymore because legitimate knives are getting dropped in uh, from the sky. Yeah, and we have heard the stories and certainly seen examples of what drones can do. And we know that drones have been used right here in BC. Is that still a situation? If we know it's been used, have we stopped it? It is still a, a huge situation, um, probably more prevalent even today than it has been a month ago. Um, and right now, we still don't have the technology we need. We're still relying on uh, correction officer diligence and searching and, and intelligence. Those are our, our tools that we're relying on right now. A drone over a prison, why can't we just shoot the bloody things down? <laughs> that is something that we're asking the Correctional Service of Canada and the Government of Canada on a daily basis. And what sort of answers are you getting? I, I mean, I don't mean to be facetious, but I kind of do. It seems to it, me that there's got to be a way to stop that. It's not like they're uh, happening without somebody looking out for them. Uh, that's the person receiving whatever they're dropping. So what resources can be added to this, what sort of response are you getting when you put out a request for more? Well, the technology is there. It, it, it exists. And we have companies that we, uh, the union has spoken to that are willing to come in and they can have the prison all set up and we can have a detection system and an uh, anti-drone system in place. It would probably take them no time at all. But it's the bureaucratic red tape that we're stuck behind with all the government regulations and procurement processes. And, and that's what we're being told right now is that's where the hiccup is. We're talking with John Randall, Union of Correctional Officers of Canada, the Pacific Region President of the Union. This after two simultaneous incidents, uh, one over at Kent, the maximum security prison in the Agassiz area yesterday. Uh, The other over at the Masque Institution in Abbotsford happened at about 5 o'clock. Two different attacks in Agassiz, three in critical condition, and two seriously hurt for sure at the Masque Institution. Not much more is known. Uh, But, John, getting back to the questions about what can be done with drones, uh, you seem to know a little bit more than I do about the technology that can be used to counter it. What sort of expense would we be looking at? Because it comes down to money, I guess. 
well, I guess it's all relative, really, because the amount of money you're putting in when you have to do searches or when you have incidents like this far trumps the money you'd spend on on a system itself. So, uh, you know, yes, it costs money to put the systems in, but the overall operational cost would be way less if we had the system. So you have to look at it that way. I don't know the exact cost of installing one of these systems, but I can tell you that it would be far less than looking at even the cost of that incident uh, just yesterday. Um, when you look at having a call in emergency response teams and all the correctional officers spent out at the hospital on overnight escorts. So there's, there's a huge uh, factor there. We've been talking with Pacific Region President John Randall with the Union of Correctional Officers of Canada. This in light of two attacks, violent attacks, yesterday during the 5 o'clock hour. One at the Kent Institution in Agassiz, the other at the Matsqui Institution in Abbotsford. And we've also heard over the past year, back in 2023, so long ago, about different reports of drones coming into prisons to drop things off, not only drugs, but weapons. Things are getting a whole lot more violent. John, what are you hearing from your members, the correctional officers? What are their concerns that have you most worried? I think the biggest concern we're hearing is just the frequency of the violence. It's, it's happening on almost a daily basis now. And, and it's taking its mental toll. It's taking a physical toll. It's, it's creating problems for us. You know, we hear about the BC gang war and about the different uh, territorial kind of um, conflicts that occur on a constant basis. Is that also being played out in the prison? Do you know of lines that are drawn between one side and the other? Oh, for sure. Just like you would see on the street, inside the prison, it's its own subculture. But there's always that uh, that war over who controls the the drugs, who controls the all that kind of stuff. So w- when you see it on the street, you generally see it happen in the prison as well. What are some of the solutions here? What would you like to see? I think a lot of the solutions would come down to... Uh, more stiffer penalties for uh, when things happen in prison, more criminal charges, uh, more, more presence that way there. Um, I think giving the officers more tools to deal with these situations, you know, a number of years ago, we lost uh, a tool, which was segregation um, because it was deemed uh, to be uh, a human rights violation, but that was a tool that we were able to use that, that you could take some time and sort these situations out. And we just don't have that anymore. So it's really put us backwards a lot. Um, And then the last piece is mental health. Uh, Just like we see out in the community, the mental health inside the institutions is is probably even more prevalent. And and we're dealing with a lot more inmates with a lot more mental health concerns. And again, there's just not the resources or the the treatment that those people need um, so that we don't have these attacks happening. Do you have a seat at the table when they talk about drugs and mental health issues in this province? Uh, not at not within the province here. We we definitely have a seat at the table when we talk federally uh, amongst the the um, Correctional Services Canada, but here in BC we don't. Okay, well this is an ongoing situation. I hope we don't hear too much about it in 2024. Uh, with this particular one that happened yesterday, John, the attack uh, at Matsqui and Kent. We know that we will be following up with you and even doing that this weekend. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. Unless you've been in a cave, you've probably heard the stories about the pilot project underway in Vancouver. Body cameras are going to be worn by police officers. 
the VPD joining forces right across the country and in many parts of North America wearing cameras to increase what many would say would be accountability or transparency. But there is a report that has come out, and it's out of Manitoba, and there's this claim. There's little reason to believe body-worn cameras will increase accountability or transparency among Vancouver police. Who says this? Christopher Schneider. Who's he? He's a sociology prof at Manitoba's Brandon University, and apparently he's published several peer-reviewed papers on body-worn cameras. He also says that the evidence is inconsistent, that the devices reduce the amount of force used by police or the number of civilian complaints against officers. Well, not all forces are going to the ca- uh, cameras. Not all of them are wearing cameras, even in some of the biggest cities in our country or the United States. But some of these claims from this professor should really be, well, at least given the chance to have frontline officers or the unions representing them respond. And for that reason, I bring in Tom Stamatakis, who is not only from Vancouver, but he's the president of the Canadian Police Association. Tom, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Tom, what do you make of that? This prof says uh, it's not going to do anything to increase transparency, accountability, nothing. Well, I guess what I would say is I resent the the uh, the inference, uh, which is entirely negative around policing, not just in the province of British Columbia, but across the country. I would argue uh, there you don't see dramatic changes with respect to accountability or transparency because I'm not sure how the police could be more accountable or transparent than they already are. In BC, for example, not only do we have two independent civilian-led oversight agencies that oversee all of uh, any incident that occurs between um, a member of the public and a police officer in the province of British Columbia. But you have numerous other mechanisms for accountability and oversight, whether it's the coroner, whether it's the criminal or civil courts, police boards, the labor processes. And in terms of transparency, again, I don't know how much more transparent you can be in a city like Vancouver where video is ubiquitous. There's not an incident that happens in this city that isn't captured by video in some fashion or another, whether it's an individual using a cell camera or a business with their surveillance cameras or what have you. So I just think this person's taking advantage of this opportunity to sort of push out what really amounts to an opinion uh, as opposed to um, actual evidence or, or reality. The fact is that police officers in Canada respond to about 12 million calls for service annually very few of those result in any kind of controversy controversy whatsoever. And force, despite some of the rhetoric, is very rarely used in this country when the police interact with the public. You know, it's interesting that uh, accountability and transparency are the two words that are being used a lot in this. Is that, to your understanding, the reason for the cameras, or is there another reason? I think using those terms is a mistake. I think the cameras can be a valuable tool, particularly, uh, you know, in circumstances where there might not be other video available, where where police officers are working on their own in isolated areas or rural remote areas. Uh, The fact, though, is that the video on itself, on its own, isn't going to tell you the whole story. The video can't tell you what the officer's perception was of a certain circumstance. The video can't tell you what the person who committed the assault or an offense 
were engaged in some other activity that attracted police attention. The video can't tell you what that person was thinking either. It's, it's, it's a tool that along with many other tools or types of evidence that can be collected whenever an incident occurs that needs to be examined, uh, it's a tool that can be used to assist in that. It's not, it's, it, and, and that's part of my concern is I think that the benefit of deploying this technology is, is, is being overstated by many people. Now, there have been cases where Vancouver police officers and other officers around the province have been questioned about their conduct by the IIO. And in many cases, their unions, including your own and yourself, have questioned whether that is fair. The process may be broken. Do you think that if the process is broken, that the cameras may help your uh, situation? Well, like I said, I think the cameras will and the video that they they capture will assist in investigations uh, as a tool, as another piece of evidence that can be used to determine what exactly happened. But I think the concerns that you that you're alluding to arise from a number of 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 other issues, including how people are being treated, uh, the whether or not the investigations are being conducted in an in an entirely objective manner, or whether they're there, uh, there are concerns around bias or, or prejudging, or whether the investigations are occurring in a manner that's not consistent with uh, the Charter of Rights, for example, or, or uh, well-established uh, good practices when it comes to how to properly and thoroughly conduct uh, an investigation. The cameras aren't cheap, and certainly the system to support the cameras is even more expensive than the hardware itself. And this is a pilot project, to be sure. At the end of the day, when it comes to reviewing what's happening in Vancouver, do you think the pilot project is going to lead to this coming in, or do you think that there would be more problems than solutions? Well, I think that's the purpose of running the pilot pilot project, is to assess whether or not there is value, whether or not they, 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 they add value, or there's a, there's a specific benefit that you realize against the cost of acquiring the technology and then maintaining it and dealing with all of the other administrative issues that go along with managing uh, the video, for example, and dealing with issues related to privacy and when you should or shouldn't um, uh, use video to record incidents. So I think that's yet to be determined. I think a big factor is, and unfortunately, much of this is being driven from the U.S., but in the U.S., the federal government actually made a significant funding commitment that allowed many services uh, to fund the, the acquisition of the technology. In Canada, we're not seeing similar investments by senior levels of government, so it does create a financial pressure on the local municipality and on the police service. And where we're struggling with staffing already and where we're challenged uh, recruiting and retaining people, I think the priority needs to be on people. Uh, that's what citizens say. Is they want to see more police officers on the street, not uh, more pieces of technology that we can deploy. So we'll, we'll have to see the other challenge with this, of course, and one of the other concerns I have is people are talking a lot about the discretion to turn the video on or off. The reality is that our whole policing model is based on the individual police officer using discretion on a daily basis. Our criminal justice system emphasizes the presumption of uh, innocence and diverting people away from our criminal justice system. So now we've got people like the sociologist or others making a big deal out of the fact that police officers are going to use their discretion. If police officers didn't use their discretion in terms of how, how they decide to take enforcement action or not, or if police services didn't make decisions every day about what to focus on from an enforcement perspective or not, 
the whole system would grind to a halt. It, 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 discretion is a fundamental part of our policing model in Canada and of our uh, criminal justice system. So the, the, these some of these arguments are, are really frustrating. And that's why we had you in for the perspective. Tom, I thank you for that, for sharing this. As we go into a pilot project, hopefully with uh, some open minds and some good questions that need to have follow-up. Thank you for your time, Tom. You're very welcome. Elon Musk, yeah, what a job he did with social media, right? Uh, Changing Twitter to X. And here's a new poll, and it involves Canadians and some of our opinions on this and other forms, other platforms of social media. But uh, we definitely believe that Elon Musk is delivering a worse social media experience. Also, according to Research Co., extremism, fake news, toxicity, those are among the top reasons Canadians cite for poor experiences on social media platforms right across the board. We're not having a good time with it. Let's bring in Mario Kinseiko, pollster, president of Research Co. Mario, thanks so much for uh, being with us. What about social media? It used to be so much fun. <laughs> it started off great, didn't it? You know, we've been tracking these questions every couple of years, and we see this time a significant proportion of Canadian social media users who say that their experience is not as good as it used to be. Uh, negative momentum for Facebook, 23% of people saying it's worse than it used to be, uh, but the lowest numbers are for X, formerly known as Twitter, 30% of users say that their experience is worse now than it was last year. So those are the two main platforms. We've seen a lot of discussion about what could come after Facebook or X are no longer with us. And we still see a lot of Canadians who are dissatisfied with their experience when they think about how these platforms used to work just a few months ago. Yeah, we know that Elon Musk, uh, of course, is now the owner of X. And for such a genius, he's an out-and-out idiot. Uh, I don't know where his branding ideas came from, but uh, to my knowledge or to the way I look at it, what X has become is nothing near what Twitter was before. And Twitter itself was having some problems last year and the year before. What's going on here and what do Canadians think about that? Well, when we ask people why their experience is worse now than it was last year, uh, 5% of them uh, mention Elon Musk by name. So you definitely have a lot of Twitter users who are dissatisfied, who are thinking about how the platform used to operate and they're essentially blaming him for it. Uh, Facebook doesn't come across unscathed either. You know, 5% of people say one of the things that is making it harder for me to enjoy social media is the absence of news from Canada. We have the situation related to news from Canada being inaccessible, and that is leading people to no longer go on Facebook for their news. Um, but the top four reasons cited by people uh, who are dissatisfied with the state of social media are extremism, fake news, toxicity, and advertising. And obviously, this is uh, something that is directly connected with the way in which some of the algorithms have been working, the type of stories that you're getting, and certainly making it more complicated for people to do what we were supposed to be doing in social media, which was make friends. Uh, now we have this uh, feeds full of people who we no longer know, uh, choosing the content that we maybe don't want to be exposed to, and it's making our experience worse than it was just a year ago. You know, it's interesting, and I, I'm glad that the three were identified, extremism, fake news, and advertising, 
because I think that there have been increases in all of those over the last little bit. Let's take a look at the first one, extremism. What are Canadians saying? Well, the one thing that really comes across when we're looking at this open-ended question is I don't want to be exposed to this type of content, uh, um, partly because it's no longer about making yourself heard or being in touch with other ideas. It's essentially this person is good, this person is bad. Um, It's something that we saw developing in the United States during the 2016 presidential election. Um, It's still creeping into the way in which we communicate. And even though we're not expected to have a federal election this year, we're starting to see a little bit of that movement, a little bit of that situation where you have somebody who is branding the other side as the most terrible thing that could happen, uh, depending on which of the two main political parties you support. And it's the kind of thing that we saw in the United Kingdom during Brexit. We've seen it consistently in the United States, which is a lot easier because of the two-party system. But it's starting to get there. And this used to be a platform where you could discuss certain things, expose people to certain links, and have a nice conversation about what was happening in the world or in the country. Um, When we ask Canadians, they're saying, no, it's become significantly more extreme and it's not something that I'm enjoying. And that slides right into the next one, which is this notion of fake news. And you mentioned this. We do know that there are there has been the move away from real news. We got rid of that, uh, the Canadian news stories appearing on Facebook. So was that what they were referring to as fake news, many of them? Or is something else now still existing where real news, the Canadian news that's produced by journalists, has disappeared? What's going on? There's a couple of things that play with each other when we look at the findings related to fake news. We continue to see a significant proportion of Canadians who tell us that they were exposed to fake news over the past year. 37% of social media users say, yeah, I ran into a link that was fake news. Um, The numbers are significantly higher with the 18 to 34 demographic at 45% and lower with the 55 and overs at 29%. Now, this doesn't mean that the over 55s are not exposed to fake news. They're having a harder time discerning what is real from what is fake. And one of the problems that we see, especially in the new X, this notion of having those community notes where everybody's rating whether something is real or not, it has reverted us to the Wikipedia of the early 21st century, where everybody's just fighting each other and writing things, and somebody's going to come in there and say, no, that's not true. It's not a tool that has been used well. And it's making things even more complicated because now you have people with a vested interest telling us that something isn't real when it might be, or those who are telling us that something is fake when it probably isn't. Okay, now advertising. I don't think anyone says, I love ads. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the legacy media or new media. But is this something different altogether when they're talking about the ads that are appearing right across the different platforms? It's very different. What we have is a significant amount of complaints, not because the ads are there. I think we've now grown accustomed to something like this, especially if you're somebody who uh, watches videos on YouTube. You're going to hold on for those five or 10 seconds and see what they're trying to sell you. The problem that we're having on Facebook and on Twitter, and this comes across when we ask Canadians, is the type of content that is there. A lot of things related to dropshipping, even some pornographic content that residents have been complaining about. Um, So the algorithm is is essentially playing with things and it's showing you uh, certain ideas that you maybe don't want to be exposed to. And this is part of the problem when you turn to the algorithm for doing something. You might be researching a specific story about extremism for 
for the sake of argument and, and you click on something, it doesn't mean that you are going to be wanting to be exposed to everything that is coming out of extremism. And that is one of the problems that we're having with the algorithm. It used to be something that directed us to stories we didn't want to see. Now it's directing us to ads uh, for things that we are definitely not interested in buying. Yeah, the other one in here that I think is different than extremism is toxicity. What are we talking about here? What we have is a situation where we can no longer discuss things with each other. Uh, the notion that if you point something out or you're criticizing a specific politician, somebody's going to come out and within the next couple of sentences, it's going to turn into something toxic. You know, you're somebody who's in love with a specific politician or you're somebody who's in bed with so-and-so. And the level of discourse that we used to have in the early stages of Twitter is now gone. You know, you can no longer have that type of discussion with somebody. And one of the reasons for this to be so toxic is the, the, the anonymity. You know, we have a majority of social media users who say we should be relying on our, no, on our own names, our own pictures if we want to comment on something. There are so many accounts out there from the Avenger of whatever who claims to have information about Justin Trudeau, Donald Trump, and whoever else it is. And this is the type of situation that you're getting into. You don't even know who you're discussing things with, and it can become toxic quite quickly. Bruce Clagett with you on this Friday afternoon. The guest is Mario Canseco. We're talking about the newest research called Poll on social media. Here are a couple numbers just pulling them out. You found links to stories on current affairs that were obviously fake, 37% of Canadians. You posted something on social media that you deleted after thinking twice about it, 32%. That's like a third of us. And then there's this. You found racist content or comments on social media, 27% of Canadians here. Your calls at 604-280-9898. Let's go to Langley and Adam. Good afternoon, Adam. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, thank um, you for calling. I would, I would definitely agree my social uh, media experience has decreased this year. But for me, my main ones are definitely the censorship of news that the government implemented. It was a big one to me that I didn't like. Um, but I kind of like what Elon Musk has done, sort of balancing the playground on, on X, getting rid of bots and stuff, and sort of equaling out the playing ground from political discourse there, I think, has been positive. Appreciate the call there, Adam. Uh, your thoughts, Mario? Um, it's an interesting dilemma because it's different from how it used to be. I think one of the things that we didn't get when we talked to Canadians who are dissatisfied with X or with Facebook was bots. Uh, there was barely a mention about bots. So this is something that has to be, seems to be going a little bit better than it used to. Uh, it has been supplanted in a way for, with the advertising complaints. So you, you win some, you lose some. I think that's pretty much the message that we're getting from the social media users. Yeah, I suspect he's losing a lot more than he is winning, but bots, perhaps, perhaps there are fewer of them. Let's go to Tanya in Surrey. Hi, Tanya. Hi. I'm just calling also about Twitter. I'm old. It's still Twitter to me. But, yeah, there's a lot of uh, fighting that goes on on there. Like, I live in a different world, the conspiratorial world, right, where you say it's uh, fake information. And because of that, I actually go to source. Every time there's a story, I look up the guy that lives in Botswana, believe it or not, and start talking to him about what they've issued back there. I've got doctor and nurses friends all around the world because I have to make sure my sources are accurate. But people still come at you, like, even though I go, yeah, no, I've researched, yeah, I've talked to the 
person, right? And they're still at you, like, no, it's just an illusion. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. People really want to back up and double down on their opinions. Um, and sometimes that creates fights between people that would otherwise be friendly. We're seeing more of that, not less, aren't we? Thanks for the call, by the way, Tanya. Uh, Mario, what do you think? It's happening in other parts uh, of news coverage that it, uh, that where it used to be completely different. And the example that I would cite is the discussions that we had over the past three months over Corey Perry playing for the Chicago Blackhawks. The amount of craziness that was discussed on social media related to his absence from the team uh, was so intense that the team had to come out and say, everything that you're saying is not true. Uh, We've never seen anything like that in sports. So that really speaks about how one message can just resonate completely and be shared widely before somebody has to say, wait a minute, this had nothing to do with, you know, Corey Perry's absence from the team. And we have to come out and say that it didn't uh, because the rumor spread uh, significantly wide, widely. Yeah, I appreciate the call on that one. You know, it's also one where I wonder whatever happened to things like context and scope. It seems like some of the stories or opinions are on issues that really don't have to be as big as they are. But that's just my take. Uh, In Richmond, Greg. Good afternoon, Greg. Well, hi there, gentlemen. Uh, I don't do Twitter. Uh, I've seen all the stuff and I just don't want to get involved i do facebook cora there's a couple others that i sort of look at but what i see is i guess it's russia north korea china whatever the the bots they're trying to divide us and that is especially like down in the states that is their wet dream a divided america if they can do that then you know divide and conquer it's the oldest trick in the book and i just see people they're, they're talking the way they talk about their fellow Americans, and in some cases, the fellow Canadians, you know, and they they, they, they call them names, they, they, their, their attitude towards them. I've known Greg, I think there. I have to agree with you, uh, just for time, I'm going to cut it there. But I think your comments are important, especially as we head into 2024, which is going to be an election year south of the border. There's so much more here to talk about. It's an interesting poll, and I thank you, Mario, for coming on to talk about it. All the best to you again in 2024. Thank you, Bruce. You too. Let's talk gadgets. Let's go down to Las Vegas and check in at the Consumer Electronics Show with Andy Brar, tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy, how are you? I'm good, Bruce. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I could hear you beautifully. And it is nothing to do with you enjoying everything that Vegas has to offer that we didn't have you right off the top, is it? Well, you know what? I saw your tweet, Bruce. I had no idea that you've attended CES in the past. So you have a, a good idea of just how big this tech trade show is and just, you know, the, the enormity of it. You know, 130,000 yeah. people are descending to Las Vegas this I, week. You know, it's funny you should mention that because I've been to, I think, four in the past, four different years, four different times. And each time there was almost a little bit of replication of the previous year. But this year, I think you're on to something that's entirely different. And it comes down to what I think is AI. Am I wrong? No, no. And it just shows how fast technology moves. Because last year, there was no talk of AI at CES because ChatGPT actually was released in just two months before that. 
But in one year, there's going to be AI in everything. And when I mean everything, I mean your television, your refrigerator, your stove, Bruce, even your toothbrush. They're going to announce an AI-enabled toothbrush this year at CES. So um, I'm not going to play any drinking games for every time you hear AI, you have to take a shot because <laughs> that, that wouldn't be very smart at all. That is absolutely the theme. And I even saw a keyboard. We talk a lot around yeah. here and other places in the media about uh, AI and in terms of content generation and stories that we write and that type of thing. Now, I saw a keyboard that is being uh, debuted there at CES in Vegas that has got an AI button. Did you see that? Yes, Microsoft is going to be unveiling a new keyboard with a dedicated AI button. Now, the reason they're doing this is AI PCs are going to be a a big theme this year uh, at CES. And what they're essentially doing is at the chip level, you know, we would always talk about GPUs, graphic processors, you know, and you would have that that in your chip. Well, they're going to have a neural network processor inside the chips of your PCs. What that's going to enable you to do is utilize AI, but not in the cloud. The processing doesn't happen in the cloud through the internet connection. It's going to happen at the PC level. And what they're hoping is it will enable people to want to experiment with AI more often knowing that it's all protected at their PC because we have to remember privacy and AI is a big concern. Um, So they're going to have to find the utility, the use cases on how we're going to use this AI, not just in the, in the PCs, but in every single consumer product that they're going to try to introduce with AI. It's the big hype word, but for me, I'm, Bruce, I've been going, I think this will be my 13th year at CES. So I'm, I'm a little older and pretty jaded. You know, I, I, I see a lot of hype, but I want to see utility. How does this affect the average person out there? And if AI can do that, you know, then I'm definitely going to be excited about it. Well, that. here's the interesting thing about the Consumer Electronics Show. And it goes way back to even before you and I were in our adult years, that we would uh, see things where technology is leading or where demand for a technology is leading. And it would be two different camps. Either devices would come out to solve a problem or, and this may be the case when it comes to AI, that there would be some piece of technology, some gadget, and not a use for it. And when I say that, you probably think, oh, what do you mean? But even the home computer came out before people knew they needed a home computer. That's what I find fascinating. And that's essentially what CES is all about. It's about to show the latest and greatest in technology, but not everything sticks. You have to remember, and you probably remember this, 3D TVs, that was a big thing. Yeah. That didn't, didn't didn't work. People didn't want to watch 3D content on their TVs. A lot of people were getting seizures from it, especially then they told, don't let kids watch this because a lot of kids were getting sick from trying to watch 3D TVs. Then they, they, they couldn't give up, Bruce. Curve TVs. Yeah, I was just going to say that. that. (laughs) The curve TVs were big one of the years I was there. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, Mm, interesting. Hard to pack, but uh, interesting. And that kind of disappeared. Yeah, here's the thing about curve TVs. They only they have one good spot that's directly center. You if you're off to the side, it doesn't it doesn't really work. They even had curved smartphones in that year. I believe it was. 2015 or 2016, that was the year of the everything. They put curves on everything. Well, this year it's going to be AI. Samsung just announced that they are going to have an AI-enabled fridge. 
So there's going to be a camera inside the fridge. It can identify all the different types of food that you have in your fridge. You can set up expiry dates and everything on a LCD panel on the front. And then it can give you recipe suggestions based upon the food that you actually have inside your fridge. You know, is this really going to stick? You know, only time will tell, Bruce. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because I know a few years ago, Samsung, by the way, along with uh, LG, are two of the big uh, companies that compete head to head, the two Korean manufacturers for not only consumer electronics, but home appliances. And I know that there was a belief that the whole home could be connected and run off things like an app on your phone. I don't know if that ever came to fruition. Certainly, they're still around and more things are being run off your apps and phones. But the connectivity to everything in one ecosystem in your home, uh, I know that was talked about six years ago. What are you seeing down there? Any remnants of that? Yeah, they, they try it every year, especially the big companies like you mentioned, Samsung and LG, because they have such huge ecosystems and they make so many different types of products. So what they'll try to do is connect your fridge to your stove. So once you decided that, oh, I'm going to select this recipe, it'll preheat your stove at the right temperatures and everything for you uh, so you don't actually have to play with the settings. In terms of televisions, television has always been a big uh, deal at CES. And this year, it's all about AI in your TV. Now, if you go to the average person's home, you know, they'll have a television, they have all these settings in there, you can change the contrast, you can change the sound quality, but no one really plays around with it. That's where the AI is coming into because they are going to embed AI. So it can look at what you're watching, it can analyze the audio and then pick the best presets and, and configurations to give you the best kind of viewing experience. So they're going to be trying to put AI into the television to do things like that. But again, you know, you people like me, I'm very skeptic these days because I've seen so much hype coming out of CES, but not everything really like, you know, becomes the, the, the big takeaway from the show. So we'll have to see if uh, AI really does have any kind of utility for the average person out there or if it's just hype it was just the the hot trend because you know everything is we're talking about in technology has to do with artificial intelligence one interesting thing is sam altman the the uh, founder of uh, open ai he won't be there so even though he's not there everyone's going to be talking about the trend that he really started with the release of chat gpt Absolutely. When you mention AI and TVs, I can actually see a purpose for that. There are times I go in front of the TV and I can't decide what I want to watch. I want to watch a good movie that makes me smile, but uh, my choices are rather eclectic and can really span anything. Maybe AI would actually help out. And the other one is when it comes to a kitchen, there are times where we can't decide and as I say this, I know a lot of people are dealing with this right now, this very moment, can't decide what's for dinner. What do we want to do? Everything seems like the same old, same old. Uh, I would imagine there's a reason or perhaps a solution in AI for that. Absolutely. And that's where they are starting to put the cameras inside your fridge so that they can kind of see what do you have, what's going to be expiring soon, and then give you the suggestions based on that with recipes right on the front dashboard so that you can have those. And you can even watch YouTube videos for those recipes directly on your fridge. You know, having displays like a TV display on the top of your fridge, that's nothing new. They've had that for years at CES. 
I have yet to see this in somebody's kitchen. So yeah. people haven't been purchasing it, but they're putting more and more of that technology and they're really trying to push it. But the problem with tech, and everybody knows this, especially with appliances, is tech gets old really fast. If you buy an appliance today, it does not work like the appliances like yesteryears. And so if you have a connected fridge, then you're going to have to do updates and then maybe the hardware gets old. So that's why I'm really kind of bullish on these uh, connected appliances, just because once you add in connectivity and internet, and we know the just the internet standard, like Wi-Fi 7 is going to be a big theme at CES, the new wireless standards that we're going to have in our homes in the next coming years. But it's you always have to keep upgrading. And I think that's why they, you know, the technology companies got into the appliances because they just want us to keep purchasing things like we do with our smartphones. About every two years, we have to upgrade our smartphones. But few people want to do that with their televisions or with the appliances that they purchase in their kitchen. Now, Andy, I should ask you before I let you go, and I want you to come absolutely clean on this one. What's the swag like this year? Are you coming across many gifts? I know I've had them in the past. And uh, what about the celebrities, the parties, all the fun sides of CES that have nothing to do with the show? Yeah, well, that's the thing about CES. Like the show is one thing, but in at nighttime, there are all these different types of parties. And when you're part of the media, you know, you get invited to all these different things. The, the big thing that everyone's trying to do is get invited to go see the Las Vegas Sphere. So there, you know, to get that, and Samsung actually had an event there for a bunch of tech journalists from Canada. None of us could attend it because it conflicted with another show that we have to go on Monday. So uh, we were unable to go and it looks like they canceled the event. And now it's a private event just for Samsung because uh, there's just so many parties and we have to say no to a lot, but there are key ones that we have to go to just because that's where the latest technology, they have exclusive events for media where they kind of give you get an early access where you can actually touch and feel these new products. So we tend to do that before going to the partying. But I try to save it for the last day, Bruce, yeah. um, because it's such a big show and I, I've lost my voice uh, years before and I'm filming there. So I kind of need my voice. So I'm going to drink a lot of water, try to get some sleep and, of course, see all the great tech that's going to be coming out uh, at CES next week. Of course, of course you are. And Andy, I said it before, you have a tough job and thank you for doing what you do. There are heroes amongst us and you're <laughs> one of them. Uh, <laughs> that is Andy Brar from Las Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show. And looking forward to following you on the web and on social media. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks, Bruce. Three matches, two hours. WWE SmackDown in Vancouver is getting underway at 5 o'clock. But we're lucky because we have our very own CKNW producer, Stephen Chang, joining us. That would be in uh, talking about uh, the proper title here, Stephen Smackdown Chang joining us from Rogers Arena. Stephen, <laughs> tell us, for the uninitiated, what is this event? Uh, Bruce, so it's a weekly televised program from WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, and it's a full house here in Rogers Arena right now. I'm literally standing by the men's bathroom just so I can hear you better because there's a lot of people here. The merch line was long, and it's a lot of... Um, a lot of anticipation. This is the first time they've been on TV since 2020, and it's got a stacked card as well. Stacked card. Uh, what are some of the big names for those of us who follow wrestling, or maybe some of us who barely follow it, but kind of uh, think, "Oh yeah, I heard that one." Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of new names for sure. Um, we don't have any Hulk Hogan's or Bret Hart's here anymore, but we do have the Rock cousin, 
uh, Roman Reigns. He's currently the uh, undisputed world champion uh, for WWE. And uh, the, the, the biggest anticipation of this is that he's responding to The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who actually just returned on TV this past Monday, challenging him or hinting at a future world championship. So that's what people are waiting for today. And there's also going to be a three-way match just looking for um, his next challenger. So that's what a lot of people are mostly excited for. I hear the announcement in the background, and I don't want to take you away from this because we're only five minutes away. Run along, young Stephen, Smackdown Chang, and enjoy yourself. Thanks, Bruce. We're going to talk a little bit, Jerry, about how mild it's been and still continues to be the temperatures. And with that, in January, as many of us know, flowers our bulbs start to uh give way and the flowers come up and you've been noticing this yeah i think that it's super weird i feel like i talk about myself being from calgary once a day but this is not something i ever noticed in calgary alberta it is dry and it is dead and it is just brown on the ground until i gotta say march maybe but um along with this weirdly mild january that it has you know ski hills and uproar and the future of that whole industry we also have have some little micro effects such as daffodils are in bloom near English Bay, some of them. And uh, there have been some social media posts about blossoming cherry trees as well during the first week of January. And that one's even more weird because I've seen daffodils in January. That's uh, okay. uh, That's not, believe it or not, Calgarian, (laughs) former Calgarian, (laughs) not too weird. But uh, the cherry blossoms, uh, that makes me think. So what have you found out? I wanted to see what's going on because I myself I know functionally nothing about plants. So I chatted with someone who does. I talked to Douglas Justice, the associate director of UBC's Botanical Garden. And I asked him about this peculiar floral situation. It is peculiar and it's not peculiar. There are a couple of things happening. Let's talk about the daffodil first. So the daffodil, most bulbs that we plant in our gardens need a certain amount of cold weather uh, before they'll pop up in the spring. And this is um, known as a chilling requirement. And so what's happening with those daffodils by English Bay, they got cold. October, it got cold. Before Halloween, we had a a fairly good frost. And so the chilling requirement doesn't require freezing temperatures. It just requires uh, kind of an extended period where the temperature is below a certain amount, then all you need is a little bit of heat uh, and then the, the bulb starts to grow. And so where those bulbs, uh, at least the, the, the ones that I know, are blooming is on a nice warm bank that accumulates a bit of heat during the afternoon. And so that combination has allowed those daffodils to come out. The, the bad news, of course, is that next week the weather forecasters are saying something like minus 10 by a week tomorrow. That's very, very cold. That's cold enough to actually burn off any of the flowers and even the foliage of those daffodils. Those daffodils by English Bay, we're not going to see them later in the spring. We have to wait until next year to see those guys. That's right. So I I recommend that everybody go and look. Yeah, right. Go right uh, now, or, or 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 Sunday when the, I think the weather is supposed to be fine on Sunday un- until it starts snowing. Now the the cherry tree that's in bloom that's a whole other thing because the cherry that's that people are seeing flowering now actually 
normally flowers in the midwinter as long as it's not too cold. And so in Japan, uh, it gets a little bit cooler in uh, September and October, and then it starts to flower uh, in, um, in October in Japan. Here, uh, it gets too cold and it doesn't warm up enough until, um, uh, until later on in the spring, but we often will have that cherry flower in January or February. Okay. So, oh my God, I just learned so many things. So we just had a more Japan-like winter. I had no idea that there were two kinds of uh, cherry blossoms, or I guess there's more than that probably, but. Um, oh, yeah. oh, no, no, no. Don't get me started on cherry blossoms. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So seeing, yeah. seeing cherry blossoms in January, no cause for alarm because they're definitely not the same ones that we usually see March, April. So are you seeing anything flowering at maybe an unusual time in the botanical garden right now because of the weird, very cold and then very mild weather? Well, we're seeing two things. One is we had a really good, summer. So we got good bud set on plants, really, really good bud set. And that combination, again, of, of the cooling down in October and then the warming up in December, that's allowed plants that would normally flower in midwinter to really flower sort of more exuberantly than they normally do. So we have really, really good displays of flowers now, but not saying that they're flowers all over the garden but for those things that do normally flower midwinter they look really really good so it's no cause for concern necessarily that we're seeing cherry blossoms because those are just we had a more japanese style winter so they get to they get to be kind of maximized by the conditions you know the thing i found kind of interesting with uh, douglas justice and your talk with him he talks about we had a very good summer it was dry yeah there wasn't much precipitation at all and mm -hmm. With that, usually you think, well, what's going to die because of it? Yeah, no, that's very true. And we also had all of those even personal like water restrictions, right? Absolutely. But maybe, I know there were some places that had special exceptions to be able to maintain their foliage. So maybe they have a, such a special exception up at, uh, up at UBC so they can, you know, preserve. Like, that's, I guess, what it's for is, you know, preserving these different varietals and stuff like that. But still, you see the flowers around and yeah. the ones in English Bay and nobody's coming in to necessarily help out there. Yeah. Yeah. And they went through the summer. That's true. Which was dry and certainly not cool. Wasn't as warm as the year before. No. But still, that was pretty harsh. And uh, we no, still have the flowers around. And we still have the flowers around and enjoy them while you can. The daffodils in particular, because they are, the outlook is not, prognosis not good for the English Bay daffodils when the cold snap comes. No, no, not at all. Did he talk about any of the other flowers, uh, snowdrops or things like those that start coming out around this time? No, but he did kind of mention that things even... Um, the flowers up at UBC, the things that uh, the flowers that are used to maybe harsher temperatures, colder temperatures and up and like higher elevations um, where they haven't really been been. They haven't really experienced the temperature fluctuation so dramatically. So they're not going to not like the daffodil. They're not just going to bloom right away right. when it gets really warm. So they're I guess maybe daffodils are kind of the canary in a coal mine that way as they experience the 
the the chill the chill requirement for the bulbs and then yeah yeah and then it's warm and then they're only there until it's cold and they drop off and you talked a little bit about daffa death <laughs> i talked about the daffa death they're gonna daffa die after sunday probably so get out and see them while you can but is guess- there anything that can be done did he say if you have bulbs and you plant them with any of these and you start to see them in the next few months. Is there anything we can do to help the flowers so they can go back to sleep little one and come out later? That's That would have been a fantastic question to ask him, Bruce, that I did not think to. And I'm such a... Like the that's why I get the big green. bucks. That's why. That's why you should be doing all the interviews. But I was, I was just like, I just today just learned how perennial plants work. So I was like, that's really neat. Um, so unfortunately not. Are you like a, are you a gardener? Are you like a Well, guy? I did put in a bunch of bulbs uh, okay. back a few months ago uh, at the right time. Okay. And I'm looking forward to them. Of course, the biggest thing is we do have rabbits in our neighborhood. Oh. But I'm uh, curious to see what happens in the next week or so. Mm-hmm. No signs yet, but of January like traditionally. Nope. Okay. But January, we can quite often see in a warmer January, they start to peek their heads up and those ones usually are lost. Oh, okay. He was mentioning the ones in English Bay. It's just like where the little cliff, the little hillside sits. It just gets On nice. On the warmer and, bench, he said. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's nice in this little like bank that uh, it gets heated up. So those ones might be anomalous. So your little daffodils might be safe at least. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. Well, thanks so much. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.